Dates and time periods are difficult to establish for many of the earliest figures and events in the Old Testament. In today's episode, we have used traditionally accepted dates while acknowledging that most of these remain speculative. Uzzah, son of Abinadab, held the reins tightly as the ox cart trundled along the dusty road toward Jerusalem. Sitting behind him was a single box covered from end to end with a heavy blue cloth. The box had been kept in a locked building on his father's hillside estate since before Uzzah was born. He had never seen it uncovered and had no idea what was inside. He'd never even seen it brought outside until last week when the king had arrived. Even then, it had remained covered. The king and his retinue rode behind Uzzah's cart in an enormous royal wagon, shielded from the sun by an awning of stretched animal hides. The king and his party danced in the back of their wagon as musicians played, calling out to God in ecstatic voices. Uzzah didn't share their glee. His father had assured him that it was a great honor to drive this old relic back to Jerusalem, but Uzzah would rather have been home tending to his own affairs. The box was supposedly important, but to Uzzah, it was just an old piece of junk, albeit a mysterious one. Just then, one of the oxen stepped in a rut and stumbled, jerking the cart and nearly knocking Uzzah off the bench. Behind him, he heard the box begin to slide. He had a sudden, panicked vision of it falling off the edge and bursting into a million pieces. His hand shot out and he grabbed the cloth, his fingers grasping the edge of the relic. He managed to steady it as the ox regained its footing. Uzzah leaned back and breathed a sigh of relief. It was the last breath he ever took. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're examining the history and legends of the biblical Ark of the Covenant. This was the sacred container built to house the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. We'll explore the investigations to find the Ark and the prevailing theories on its current whereabouts. The Ark of the Covenant is an important relic in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. 
constructed during the time of Moses, around 1300 BCE, it was an object of adoration and worship for the early Hebrew people. The ark was believed to be imbued with the presence of God and with God's holy power. As such, the Israelites frequently carried it with them into battle, believing it could help them overcome their enemies. It's mentioned over 200 times in the Old Testament, but it disappeared from history around the 6th century BCE, and the Bible gives no indication of what might have happened to it. As a result, numerous theories have risen over the years to explain its mysterious disappearance. Today, we're going to explore five of those theories. The first theory suggests that the Ark is located under the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is the spot where King Solomon's temple once stood. According to the Old Testament, the Ark was housed in the inner sanctum of the temple, called the Holy of Holies. Supporters of this theory believe the Ark was hidden within secret tunnels underground. The second theory argues that the prophet Jeremiah hid the ark in a cave on Mount Nebo in the modern country of Jordan. Our third theory centers on Egyptian king Sheshonk I, who died around 922 BCE. Sheshonk invaded the Jewish kingdom, raided the temple, and may have taken the ark as treasure. The next theory is similar to the previous one, but instead of the Egyptian Sheshonk, this theory argues the Ark was looted by the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar II. His armies attacked Jerusalem around 586 BCE and eventually destroyed the city, including the temple where the Ark was kept. Our final theory argues that a son of King Solomon named Menelik took the Ark with him to present Ethiopia around 950 BCE. Many people believe the Ark is still there, kept within the church of Our Lady Mary of Zion in the city of Aksum. The story of the Ark of the Covenant begins in the book of Exodus. At that point in the biblical account, the Hebrew people had just escaped from slavery in Egypt. They were living as nomads in the Sinai Desert between the modern borders of Egypt and Israel. Around the early 1300s BCE, God instructed Moses to build a container to hold the Ten Commandments. The text stated, You shall make an ark and overlay it with pure gold. God gave very specific instructions to Moses about how the ark should be built. It was to be made of acacia wood and covered with gold leaf inside and out. It had to be rectangular in shape about four feet long and two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet high. Rings along the outside corners were designed to hold two long poles, also made of acacia wood and covered in gold leaf. These would allow the ark to be carried without actually being touched. Finally, God instructed Moses to build an ornate lid of pure gold. On its top, Moses was told to fashion two golden angels with their wings spread over the box. They were to face one another with their heads bowed. The lid wasn't just for decoration. It was literally God's earthly throne. The Hebrew word used for the ark's lid is often translated as mercy seat. 
the Old Testament states, When Moses went in to speak with the Lord, he would hear the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant, from between the two angels. Moses tasked two of his craftsmen to build the Ark. When it was finished, he placed the tablets of the Ten Commandments inside. Whether it held anything else is a matter of debate. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament suggested there were two other items in the ark. Hebrews was written many centuries after the ark disappeared, but it alleged that the ark also held a jar of manna and a staff belonging to Moses' right-hand man, Aaron. Manna was a type of flaky white bread. It was said to have been miraculously supplied to the Hebrews after they fled from Egypt. After building the ark, Moses instructed Aaron to put a jar of manna with it for safekeeping. He wanted it to be saved so that future generations would remember how God provided for them in the desert. Aaron's staff was also said to have had miraculous qualities. During the time of the Exodus, a debate broke out among the various Hebrew tribes about which tribe would establish the priesthood. To settle the debate, Moses took the staff of each tribe's leader and placed it before the Ark of the Covenant. He then left them there overnight. The next morning, Aaron's staff had sprouted flowers. So Aaron's tribe, the Levites, were chosen to establish the priesthood. If the account given in the book of Hebrews is correct, that same flowering staff was later put into the Ark of the Covenant along with the jar of manna. Since the Israelites under Moses were nomadic and had no permanent temple, they instead erected a large tent to function as their place of worship. Called the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting, it had a special room inside where the ark was stored. The room was blocked off from the rest of the tabernacle by a curtain. Whenever it was time for the Israelites to move to a new place, they packed up the tent and all its furnishings. To ensure that it was protected, they covered the ark with three layers. These included the curtain that hung over the doorway, a leather tarp, and a blue cloth. As they traveled, the ark went at the head of the column, always completely covered. It was so sacred, the priests who carried it weren't even allowed to touch the poles with their hands. Instead, they balanced the poles on their shoulders, squatting together to lift and lower it. Everyone but these priests had to stay back out of reverence. The book of Joshua states that the people never got closer than 2,000 cubits, which is over half a mile. When they settled somewhere new, the tabernacle went up again and the ark went back to its sacred spot behind the curtain in the inner sanctum. No one but the high priest was ever allowed to look at the ark uncovered. Jewish scripture routinely stressed that any unauthorized person who touched or looked at the ark would be killed. When Moses died, around 1273 BCE, his assistant, Joshua, assumed leadership of the Israelites. It was Joshua who ultimately led the Hebrew people into the Promised Land. To do so, they had to cross the Jordan River, and here the ark came in handy. While priests stood in the river holding the ark, the river ran dry. 
Mimicking the earlier story of Moses using his staff to part the Red Sea, now Joshua used the ark to let the Israelites cross the Jordan. And the ark proved to be useful for more than just drying up rivers. The promised land was occupied by the Canaanites, so Joshua and his people had to drive them out if they wanted to settle there. As the seat of God's presence, the ark was put to use towards this goal. At the Battle of Jericho, Joshua circled the city with the ark at the head of the army. According to the story, he repeated this circuit once a day for the next six days. On the seventh day, he took the ark around seven times. And then, as the old song says, the walls came a-tumbling down. The city walls crumbled to the ground, the Israelites entered the city, and Jericho fell to Joshua's sword. Following the successful conquest of Canaan, the old tabernacle tent was set up in the town of Shiloh, some 20 miles north of modern Jerusalem. The ark was put in its special place behind the curtain and stayed there for hundreds of years. Then, around 1060 BCE, the Israelites found themselves in conflict with the Philistines, the people who lived in the western part of Canaan. They were defeated and forced to retreat. Hoping to have better luck in their next battle, they brought the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and took it with them to face the Philistines. But disaster struck. Despite carrying the Ark with them into battle, the Israelites suffered an even bigger defeat than before. Then, as if that wasn't bad enough, the unthinkable occurred. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it back with them to their own lands. The Israelites were mortified and heartbroken. Their greatest sacred relic, the very throne of God, was gone. But as it turns out, the Ark still had some power left in it, as the Philistines would discover in the worst possible way. Coming up, the Ark of the Covenant wreaks havoc on the Philistines. Now, back to the story. Around the year 1060 BCE, the Philistines defeated the Israelites in battle and captured the Ark of the Covenant. This was a disaster for the Hebrew people, but it became an even bigger disaster for the Philistines. When they took the Ark back to their land in the western part of Canaan, the Philistines noticed strange things happening. In the town of Ashdod, they placed the ark in a temple next to the statue of the god Dagon. The next morning, they found the statue overturned, lying on its face. Dagon's head and hands were broken off. Then the people of Ashdod grew sick, afflicted with skin sores and tumors. As the plague raged across town, the inhabitants decided the source of their problems must be the ark. So they sent it on to the Philistine town of Gath. The plague followed, and it continued in every place that the ark went. The book of 1 Samuel states, For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Those who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The Philistines had had enough. After seven months, they sent the ark back to the Israelites 
along with an offering of gold, which they hoped would appease God's wrath. By this time, Shiloh, the religious capital of the Hebrew people, had been destroyed in battle. So the ark was taken to a town called Kiryat Ya'arim. There, it was put into storage on the estate of a prominent man named Abinadab. It stayed there for the next 60 years or so. During that time, the Jewish tribes united for the first time under a single monarch, King David. In the first few years of his reign, around 1010 BCE, David decided to make Jerusalem the capital city. So the first thing he did was travel to Kiryat Ya'arim to fetch the Ark of the Covenant. This was crucial because the Ark was already an important piece of Jewish history. David wanted to legitimize his monarchy and unite his people under God's law. The best way to symbolize that was to bring the Ark of the Covenant with him to Jerusalem. The Ark was brought out of storage and placed onto a cart. King David personally supervised the transfer. One of Abinadab's sons, Uzzah, was given the honor of driving the cart. As they journeyed toward Jerusalem, the oxen stumbled and shook the cart. The ark threatened to tumble out onto the ground. When Uzzah reached back to steady it, he was killed instantly. The text states, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. King David was so upset by this event that he decided the ark was too dangerous to be brought into Jerusalem. So he placed it at another estate owned by one of his advisors. Only after that advisor's family was blessed with subsequent good fortune did David finally decide it was safe to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Once safely within David's new capital city, the ark was placed in another tabernacle tent. This was similar to the one used by Moses and the Israelites several hundred years earlier. It stayed there for the remainder of David's reign. After his death, David's son Solomon took the throne. Solomon launched a large-scale building campaign, which included the first permanent stone temple of the Hebrew people. It stayed there for the remainder of David's reign. After his death, David's son Solomon took the throne. Solomon launched a large-scale building campaign, which included the first permanent stone temple of the Hebrew people. Built around 1000 BCE, Solomon's temple stood on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Its construction was similar to the tent tabernacle in design, with a large outer sanctuary and an inner Holy of Holies separated by a door. The biggest difference between the tabernacle and the temple was that the Holy of Holies included statues of two large angels, similar to the smaller statues on top of the ark. They stood facing each other on opposite sides of the chamber. The ark was placed beneath them, protected by their outstretched wings. Only the high priest was permitted inside the Holy of Holies on only one day per year, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. On that day, the priest stood before the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkled bull's blood on it and on the ground in front of it. In this way, he would atone for the sins of all the Israelites. 
But even the high priest wasn't immune to the ark's power. When he went inside the Holy of Holies, he had to carry smoking incense in front of him to create a cloud around the lid so that he couldn't see God's mercy seat between the two angels. Otherwise, he too could suffer Uzzah's fate. After Solomon placed the ark in the Holy of Holies, it falls out of the biblical narrative for the next 350 years. In fact, it's only mentioned one more time in the Old Testament. The story comes during the reign of King Josiah, who ruled from 640 to 609 BCE. Josiah mounted a campaign to rid the kingdom of paganism. In the process, he also renovated Solomon's temple. During this renovation, he instructed the priests to return the ark to the temple. The story gives no explanation of where the ark had been or how long it had been gone. The text simply states, Put the holy ark in the house that Solomon built. Then serve the Lord your God. And after that, the ark is never mentioned again in the Old Testament. Following Josiah's reign, the Jewish kingdom fell into the crossfire of two opposing and much larger empires, the Egyptians and the Babylonians. Around 586 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar II of the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, destroying the city and everything in it. Numerous high-ranking Jewish officials and their families were taken into exile in Babylon. Known as the Babylonian Captivity, it was a seminal event in the history of the Jewish people. But in the stories of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, there's no mention of the Ark. Instead, it simply disappears from the biblical account. So what happened to the Ark after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem? Was it still there at the time, or had it already disappeared? Proponents of our first theory believe that the Ark is located beneath the ruins of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This theory dates back a very long time, at least 1,800 years. Our first reference to it comes from Jewish rabbis who lived during the 2nd century CE. By then, Jerusalem had been destroyed a second time by the Romans. This happened around 70 CE. Afterwards, the Jewish people were dispersed around the Mediterranean and their temple was never rebuilt. Instead, local synagogues became the center of Jewish worship. And for the first time, rabbinical teachings started getting written down so they could be copied and distributed among distant Jewish communities. One of these early rabbinical writings is known as the Mishnah. In one of the chapters, the rabbis argue about what happened to the Ark. Several agree that it was hidden on the Temple Mount, basing their argument on a nuanced reading of one of the Ark passages in the Old Testament. The rabbis don't speculate on how it was hidden, only that it was somehow beneath the foundation rock of the Holy of Holies. So why can't archaeologists just dig there and find out? Unfortunately, it's not that simple. To begin with, there are countless archaeological layers that have obscured the original location of Solomon's temple. After the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they eventually rebuilt it and erected a shrine to Jupiter on the Temple Mount. 
This shrine was destroyed by Christians in the 4th century, and a large church was put up in its place. That, in turn, was demolished by conquering Muslims in the 7th century. Muslim rulers erected a domed structure over the spot believed to have been the original site of the Holy of Holies in Solomon's Temple. It still stands today and is known as the Dome of the Rock. They also built a large mosque on the opposite side of the Temple Mount. Due to all this building, any evidence for Solomon's Temple has either been destroyed or buried deep in the ground. Many scholars, in fact, doubt that Solomon ever built any permanent temple. But perhaps the reason no archaeological evidence has been found is because no significant dig has ever taken place on the Temple Mount. A delicate political situation has persisted in the area since 1967, when the modern nation of Israel came into control. Though owned by the Israelis, the mount is administered by Muslims under the eye of the Jordanian monarchy. As a result, archaeological digs are not permitted and no serious investigation has ever taken place. But that doesn't stop a lot of people from following the old rabbinical theory that the Ark is still on the Temple Mount somewhere. Amateur explorations revealed the existence of passageways and reservoirs beneath the rock. Many believe these unexplored tunnels hold the key to finding the Ark. The influential Rabbi Maimonides, who lived during the 12th century CE, theorized when King Solomon built the Holy Temple, knowing that it was destined to be destroyed, he built a place in which to hide the Ark inside hidden deep winding passageways. It was there that King Josiah placed the Ark 22 years before the temple's destruction. Unfortunately, no one knows where Maimonides got his information. But a modern Jewish group called the Temple Institute follows his account and claims to know exactly where the Ark is. Their goal is to rebuild the temple. In their literature, the group states... The location of the Ark is recorded in our sources, and today there are those who know exactly where this chamber is. And we know that the Ark is still there, undisturbed, and waiting for the day when it will be revealed. Overall, the Temple Mount theory seems reasonable at first glance. The textual evidence is compelling, especially when combined with the known existence of underground passages in the area. But the weakness of the textural evidence is that it's so far removed from the actual events. The Mishnah was compiled some 700 years or more after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And Maimonides lived and worked more than 1,500 years after that. How could any of them have known what took place in the early 6th century BCE? Without any reliable archaeological evidence and without reliable sources close to the event, it seems unlikely that the Ark will be found on the Temple Mount. So that leads us to our second theory, which argues that the prophet Jeremiah hid the Ark before the Babylonians destroyed the Temple. The basis of this argument comes from the Jewish text 2 Maccabees, written around 125 BCE. 
Jeremiah was a prominent Jewish prophet who warned the Israelites of the coming attack by Babylon, which ultimately occurred around 586 BCE. Some 450 years later, he was reported to have secretly hidden the ark before the Babylonians reached the city. The text states, Jeremiah ordered that the ark should follow with him, and he went out to the mountain where Moses had gone up and had seen the inheritance of God. Jeremiah came and found a cave dwelling, and he brought there the ark. Then he sealed up the entrance. The place where Moses went up to see the inheritance of God is described in the Old Testament as Mount Nebo. This real-life hill sits on the eastern side of the Jordan River, across from the city of Jericho. Following this theory, an amateur explorer named Tom Crotzer embarked on an archaeological expedition to Mount Nebo in 1981. Kratzer had previously claimed to have found both Noah's Ark and the Tower of Babel. He had no proof for either of those discoveries, but this time he was sure he was onto something. After a few days of intense searching, he claimed to have found the Ark exactly where 2nd Maccabees said it would be, sitting in a hidden cave. He said in a later account of the discovery, there it was. For the first time since Jeremiah placed it in this cave, a human eye was gazing upon the sacred ark. A strong presence seemed to engulf me. Words cannot express the sense of awe, even the sense of God there in that cave. He went on to state that God had not sent him there to take the ark or even open it, only to find it. So he took some pictures and left. But had he really found the Ark of the Covenant? Up next, we'll explore the answer. Now, back to the story. In 1981, amateur explorer Tom Crotzer claimed to discover the Ark of the Covenant in a cave on Mount Nebo. This was where 2nd Maccabees said it would be. His claims caused a minor sensation and were published across the newswires. The Biblical Archaeological Review Journal investigated Kratzer's claims, including the photographs he had taken. The pictures depict what looked like a gold-covered box with intricate metalwork around the edges. But the elaborate mercy seat with twin golden angels is conspicuously absent. Professor Siegfried H. Horn of Andrews University studied the pictures for the journal. He said the gold looked machine-worked, and he could see a modern nail head in the upper right corner. Professor Horn stated, I do not know what the object is, but the pictures convinced me that it is not an ancient artifact, but of modern fabrication with machine-produced decorative strips and underlying metal sheet. Kratzer's claims have been universally rejected by scholars as a hoax. Of course, that doesn't mean the Ark isn't actually somewhere on Mount Nebo. But the only account we have of the story comes from a source written more than 400 years after the event, 2nd Maccabees. It's not attested anywhere else, including, most notably, the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Furthermore, Unlike with the Temple Mount, 
Archaeological digs have taken place on Mount Nebo over the decades. While they've turned up early Christian churches and monasteries, there has never been any hint of the Ark. It seems that if the Ark is ever found, it won't be on Mount Nebo. Our third theory suggests that Egyptian king Shashank I looted the Ark around 925 BCE. The Jewish kingdom at that time was ruled by Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who already had a problem on his hands. Prior to Egypt's attack on Jerusalem, a prominent figure named Jeroboam had been conspiring for several years to split the northern tribes off from the southern tribes and rule them independently. Because of this, Solomon had exiled Jeroboam to Egypt, where he was taken under the protection of King Shashank. But after Solomon died, Jeroboam returned. He attempted to negotiate with Rehoboam, the new king, but those negotiations failed. Jeroboam rebelled, taking the ten northern tribes with him. From that time forward, there were two kingdoms, one in the north called the Kingdom of Israel, and one in the south, the Kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom controlled Jerusalem and the temple. In an effort to assist his old friend Jeroboam, Shashank of the Egyptians invaded the Kingdom of Judah. He destroyed a number of towns, and Rehoboam was forced to pay a massive tribute to him to keep him from destroying Jerusalem, too. This invasion is recorded not just in the Old Testament, but also in inscriptions found in Egypt. According to the book of Second Chronicles, Shashank took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. Supporters of our third theory suggest that while the text doesn't specifically mention the Ark, it does explicitly say that Shashank took everything. If that's true, it's hard to imagine that this wouldn't have included the most precious item of all, the Ark of the Covenant. But many scholars point out that Shashank's own accounts of this invasion don't actually mention anything about treasure or tribute from Rehoboam. In fact, while a number of Jewish towns are mentioned, Jerusalem itself is noticeably absent from the list of conquered places. But we can't reject this theory outright. The fact that the story shows up in Egyptian records is compelling. That doesn't often happen with stories from the Old Testament. It lends credence to the notion that the invasion really did take place. Even though Shashank's own account differs in some ways from the biblical account, they both agree he attacked and subdued large swaths of the kingdom of Judah. The fact that he doesn't mention taking tribute doesn't mean the biblical account isn't true. In fact, taking tribute in exchange for not laying waste to cities was a common practice. And the absence of Jerusalem from the list of conquered cities may not be significant. Several dozen names from the list were scratched out in antiquity and are no longer legible. In the chronology of the Old Testament, Shashank's attack was the first time any foreign nation invaded Jerusalem after the temple was built. If the Ark was going to be plundered by invaders, that's the most logical time for it to have happened. 
But in the end, the biggest problem with this theory is that it doesn't account for the fact that the Ark was reportedly still in Jerusalem during the time of Josiah, 300 years later. Which leads us to our fourth theory. In this scenario, the Ark survived until the time of the Babylonian invasion in 586 BCE, but was either carried off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar II or destroyed. The story in the Old Testament states, All the vessels of the house of God, large and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, all these he brought to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God. As with Shoshonk's invasion 350 years earlier, the Ark is not explicitly mentioned, but the text makes it clear that everything important was taken. Furthermore, whatever wasn't taken would have been destroyed, since the Babylonians went a step further than Shoshonk and actually tore down the temple itself. Many of the leading Jewish families were taken into captivity in Babylon after Jerusalem fell. But some 50 years later, the Persian Empire under King Cyrus overran the Babylonians. The Persians took a kinder view of the Jewish people and permitted them to return to their homeland and rebuild it. Cyrus also returned much of the loot plundered by the Babylonians. Once again, the Old Testament texts give a detailed account of what was returned. And once again, the Ark is not mentioned. This, coupled with the destruction of the temple, has led many people to assume that the Ark was simply destroyed during the Babylonian invasion. This point of view was taken by several of the rabbis in the Mishnah, the early collection of rabbinical writings we explored earlier. But it's not only those rabbis who thought Babylon was responsible for the Ark's disappearance. Another Jewish text, Second Esdras, makes the same argument. This book is attributed to the Jewish leader Ezra from the 5th century BCE. He was the one who helped rebuild the temple after the Jews returned from Babylon. Scholars, however, believe the book was written many centuries later, sometime during the 2nd or 3rd century CE. This would make it contemporary with the Mishnah. In the text, while lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, Ezra states, the light of our lampstand has been put out. The Ark of our Covenant has been plundered. Our holy things have been polluted. This is the only scriptural reference to the Ark during the Babylonian invasion, though it comes from outside the Old Testament. Still, if the writer of Second Esdras knew what he was talking about, then perhaps the Babylonians either stole or destroyed the Ark. But that still doesn't seem likely. Despite the Old Testament giving a detailed list of what was taken and what was later returned, the Ark is never mentioned. If Nebuchadnezzar II took the Ark, it surely would have been noted. And if he destroyed the Ark, that surely would have been noted too. Furthermore, our only source for the Ark being plundered by Nebuchadnezzar II comes from Second Esdras, a source written as much as 800 years after the Babylonian invasion. Similar to the author of 2 Maccabees, it's unlikely that the writer of 2 Esdras had any idea what had actually happened to the Ark. So maybe the proponents of our final theory have it right. 
This theory denies that the Ark was plundered or destroyed at all. It also discounts any notion of someone hiding the Ark, whether in a cave or on the Temple Mount. Instead, this theory states that the Ark most definitely still exists and is currently stored away inside a church in Ethiopia. Like many of our other theories, this one also has ancient origins. It's found in an Ethiopian saga called the Kebra Nagast and states that the Ark has been in Ethiopia since the time of King Solomon. In the Old Testament, the Queen of Sheba brings elaborate gifts to the king. The Kebra Nagast argues that the Queen of Sheba was Ethiopian and that she and Solomon carried on an affair while she was in Jerusalem. When she returned to Ethiopia, she gave birth to Solomon's son named Menelik. As a young man, Menelik traveled back to Jerusalem to see his father. When he returned home, members of his retinue stole the ark and brought it back with them, putting it in a temple in the city of Aksum. Though the text itself is dated to around the 14th century CE, many Ethiopians accept the Kebra Nagast as historically valid. The saga was used to legitimize the Ethiopian monarchy, which was said to have continued in an unbroken line from Menelik in the 10th century BCE up to the final Ethiopian king, who died in 1975. Though the alleged 3,000-year-old monarchy descended from Solomon is now defunct, many people believe the Ark is still in Ethiopia. The Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion in Aksum has a chapel on its property that reportedly holds the Ark. A monk from the local monastery is chosen to live in the chapel permanently in order to guard it. He is the only person permitted to view it. Ultimately, there are several problems with the account provided in the Kebra Nagast. The first is that it was written in the Middle Ages, while detailing events that supposedly occurred thousands of years earlier. It also has all the qualities of legend and myth-making, similar in style to stories of the same era about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. It was an effort to legitimize the Ethiopian kings by tying them to Solomon, a figure of mythic proportions. But if the Ark isn't in the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion, what is being guarded day and night by monks? Is there really anything there? Journalist Graham Hancock published The Sign and the Seal in the early 1990s, which explored that question. Hancock detailed his own investigation of the Ark of the Covenant and ultimately concluded that it was, in fact, in Ethiopia. The book caused a sensation at the time, and many experts were consulted to comment on the matter. Edward Uhlendorf, a professor of Ethiopian studies at the University of London, stated, I've seen the artifact. There was no problem getting access when I saw it in 1941. They have a wooden box, but it's empty. Middle to late medieval construction, when these were fabricated ad hoc. Assuming Professor Uhlendorf's statement is true, that means the box in Ethiopia was built around the same time that the Kebra Nagast was being written. And that implies very strongly that it's all a medieval forgery. Of these five theories, we think it's most likely that the Ark was taken by the Egyptian Shashank, 
It was the first time the temple had been plundered, and why wouldn't he have taken its most precious item? Furthermore, this would explain why biblical references to the Ark mostly cease after the time of Solomon, despite being very prominent before that. Shashank attacked only five years or so after Solomon's death. The Ark is mentioned once more after that. As we said, this came during the reign of Josiah, when he supposedly returned the Ark to the temple from an unknown location. But there's good reason to believe this account is apocryphal. Stories of Josiah's reign are provided in the Old Testament in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And the version in Kings doesn't mention the Ark. It's only mentioned in the Chronicles version. This is telling because most scholars believe the books of Chronicles were written several hundred years after the books of Kings. So if Second Chronicles' vague reference is discounted as legendary, then that means the Ark disappeared from the record right around the time of Shashank's invasion. If Shashank took the Ark, it's unlikely he would have hidden it somewhere for modern explorers or adventurers to find, even though that storyline makes for a good movie. The gold would have been a valuable addition to his treasury, and he likely would have stripped it away from the wood beneath. Then the box itself would have been little more than garbage to be disposed of. So if Shashank did take the Ark, we think it's doubtful that it still exists today. The Ark of the Covenant is one of the few biblical relics that is of equal importance to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. It played a central role in the religious life of the ancient Hebrews and was already legendary by the time Solomon's temple was destroyed. Since that time, it has become one of the most famous and sought-after religious relics in history. As early as the 2nd century CE, writers speculated on its whereabouts and rabbis argued over various theories. Despite numerous investigations, both amateur and professional, the location of the Ark, if it exists at all, has remained elusive. And maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet later credited with hiding the Ark, takes an entirely different view of its ultimate importance. Imagining a future time when the people of God are united, Jeremiah argued that eventually Jerusalem itself, rather than the Ark, will be the throne of God. He said, In those days, says the Lord, they shall no longer say, The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, or be remembered, or missed, nor shall another one be made. Thanks again for listening to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. For more information on the Ark of the Covenant, among the many sources we used, we found From Eden to Exile by Eric H. Klein extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Gone, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Scott Christmas and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>